All right. Well, this morning, uh, we are continuing our summer Bible jam, and we're going we're gonna to venture into learning how to meditate on the epistles. But before I do that, let me, let me just highlight, I guess this is the great purpose. I think I can say the great purpose for why do we do summer Bible jam? This is our third, not our fourth, but at least our third year of devoting the summer to a very simple thing. We just want Christians to stay in love with or fall more deeply in love with their Bibles. And in an age where everything is absorbing us to pay attention to it, besides our Bibles, this, this is probably a critical, as more, more critical than ever, perhaps, venture for us. Uh, let, let me start with this thought. I mean, put this quote up here from a man named Bill Hybels. Looks like we've got too many things up there. I think you need tongues and interpretation if you do it that way, guys. Thank you. Bill Heibel says, We made a mistake. What we should have done when people crossed the line of faith and became Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders. We should have gotten people, taught people how to read their Bible between service. How to do the spiritual practices much more aggressively on their own. All right, now, if you don't know who Bill Hybels is, you, you don't get the weight behind who it is that's saying this. Bill Hybels was the pastor of a church in the suburbs of Chicago, Illinois, that perhaps has been in America the most modeled after church in all of America. Uh, this church, over 20,000 people participate in this church. Grew in the 80s and the 90s. Published all kinds of information. They were attempting to do outreach and discipleship in ways that were making sense to them. I think they were sincere. I think they were eager. I think God used them in many, many ways. And many people's lives were affected. But they pushed through. And this is, church started in the 70s. Went through the 80s and 90s. They got into the early 2000s. And they decided as a team of leaders to sit down and reevaluate. What have we built? And what have we done? And they began to look at the quality of walk and discipleship in the people's lives that they had been caring for through these years. And what they noticed was a severe lack of people coming to understand things by studying their Bibles. They could follow what the church was programming, but they weren't very deep in a number of areas. And they felt like the, you know, the flaw in what we installed was that we didn't teach people to be self-feeders. And a number of years ago, we wrestled through some of these things for many years. And just how can we do this better as a church? And a growing concern for us has been, you know, how are we doing with getting people who, when they're not here, because let's face it, most of your time as a Christian, you're not here. Right? You get a message, an hour message in a week, but man, you got 167 other hours in the week. What are you doing to interact with the Bible then? And so Summer Bible Jam is a little bit of a conviction in our heart that we want to teach you not just uh, kind of how to eat fish, but how to fish, right? 
Not just, you know, how, how do we come and hear a sermon that's going to touch on issues in our lives and maybe we get convicted by that. Maybe in, in that moment, in this setting, we're, we're being affected by the nearness of God and we read a Bible passage when we're together and we hear preaching on it and it's like, yeah, yeah, that verse makes sense now. Oh, that's what that means. And, and in that moment, we love our Bibles. But what about the rest of the week? What about the rest of our time spent? And too many people... Let's face it, they're not reading their Bibles because their Bible is boring. Their interaction with the Bible is not rewarding. It doesn't leap out at them. It doesn't grab them by the throat. It doesn't bring convictions. It doesn't awaken faith. It doesn't launch them into something that matters in their lives. So they just leave their Bible on the shelf. And they read lots of other stuff. And that's why we do Summer Bible Jam. We want you to love reading the Bible and encounter God when you read the Bible. Because there's something here that's like nothing else that you will ever get around. The living word of God. So what we've done each week, and we're going to do it again today, is, 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 is teach us a little bit on how to interact with aspects in scripture. How to see some things there, but then how to let them see us. Teach them how to let our lives be near to what we learn to see in the passage. So let's learn for a moment, how do we interact with an epistle? Right? An epistle, if you're not familiar with that word, it's basically a word that describes a letter, and, and that would be a letter in the New Testament. And so from your section of the Bible, from Romans all the way to Jude, right? we're going to have another week where we deal specifically with Revelation, but from Romans to Jude, you're living in this section of the Bible called the epistles. Right? A couple of thoughts here, some quotes from some helpful resources that I hope you get stuff like this in your library to help you read the Bible. What's an epistle? Well, as applied to the 21 letters, the word epistle has come to have chiefly a technical and exclusive meaning. It refers in common usage to the communications addressed by five, possibly six, New Testament writers to individual or collective churches or to single persons or groups of Christian disciples. You know, one massively important element, now when you pick up a letter that's in the New Testament, it's a letter that's going to a particular destination, right? So it's, it's not a general thing that's just been written down. It's a, it's a letter that's specifically aiming at individuals. And those individuals are living a particular life. They're experiencing certain things. And so epistles are, are generally known as occasional letters. In other words, there was an occasion for this letter to be written. There was a situation into which this letter was being written. So in, in some ways... You can kind of get some benefit from reading the epistles because they, they, they provide a little bit of a Q&A on issues of life and issues of belief and things that we might think God is really about this and this is what the gospel means and what about the Holy Spirit and how do we live in relationship to things and people, etc. Well, there's a Q&A going on in the epistles, which in some ways makes the epistles very popular because they answer questions that all of us have about what we believe and what we're supposed to believe. Everybody should own, I'm going to quote twice here from the ESV study Bible, three times actually. Everybody needs a little help in this category. So if you don't own a study Bible, I'm scratching my head and going, why? I don't get it. If this is the most important thing you're ever going to read, the first thing you're going to need to realize is it wasn't written yesterday and it wasn't mailed to American suburban people. So there's a distance between you and the, and the origins of this book. And do you know anything about that distance? 
language distance, culture distance, idea differences. And study Bibles help us bridge that distance. So if you don't have a study Bible, I don't understand that. Because you should be reading your Bible with a little bit of help when you go to read passages that are there. ESV study Bible says in almost every instance, right? This is, this is them helping you read an epistle. They got a little section in that study Bible about the epistles and it'll explain it to you. In almost every instance, they are addressed to specific situations facing churches. It's clear in reading Galatians, Colossians, 2 Peter, Jude, that the letters were written because false teaching had infiltrated the churches. Upon reading 1st and 2nd Corinthians, we realize that Paul wrote in response to various problems in the Corinthian church. The letters are crafted to speak to readers as they face everyday life. So that's helpful. If you're going through a season right now of great suffering in your life, what, what epistle would you go to to answer that issue? Well, hopefully you're not too well. Uh, Galatians? I'm just guessing. Uh, well, you can go to read Galatians, but you know, 1 Peter would help you a lot more in the area of suffering. 2 Peter as well, to address a season of suffering. Did you know Hebrews loads up some of the greatest amount of doctrinal clarification about the Old Testament. But do you know why it does it? To help Christians in the first century to not quit. To not give up on taking the next step. To transfer their hope beyond the things that they were struggling with. And so, boy, what a lesson you get there. Why has why the Bible got so much stuff in the Old Testament? Well, the, the writer of Hebrews picks up this massive amount of doctrinal information from the Old Testament. And he serves it up to a people basically saying, this is why we don't quit. This is why we keep running the race that's set before us. Right? Well, you, you could feel that way, right? You could feel like quitting at some point. Did you know that Hebrews would help you? Sit down and study that letter and understand what it's saying. We need that. Another thought from the ESV Study Bible. Reading the letters can be like listening to half of a telephone conversation. We hear only the writer's response to the situation in a particular church. Still, we trust that God in his goodness has given us all that we need to know in order to interpret the epistles adequately and to apply them faithfully. When you come to the epistles, one more quick note. When you come to the epistles, right? When we taught this, we taught this last Bible jam in the summer. There, there are these unfolding chapters of God's dealing with humanity. He does not deal with them exactly the same way in every chapter. So you got to kind of know what chapter am I in right now. So when you come to the epistles, geographically, timeline-wise, you are on the other side of the death, burial, resurrection, and giving of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. That is a massive place to locate in the Bible. Because everything that was happening before that has a certain application, tone to it. And everything happening after it has a certain application. They're not contradictory. They're just different settings where God is doing something different. You need to know that when you read an epistle. There are things that the epistles will turn around and say to the audience, who you and I are that audience, that are different than what Moses was saying at Mount Sinai. Not contradictory, different moment in God's revealing his purpose. When you come to read the epistles, do you know that? Are you aware of where you're located? Kind of, here's where I am on the map. 
when I listen to these words from these epistles, what are they telling me to do? Because the New Testament should be read by us with this understanding that I have the indwelling presence of God with me in a unique way that previous generations before the cross did not. So whatever God is telling me to do, he's speaking to somebody who's equipped for life differently than the person who came before. I should know that. And it'll help me apply the scriptures to my life. Um, all right, let's look at, at seeing something today. I'm just going to grab a section of scripture that can help us. Let's see something. Let's learn how to see something. So we're going to pick up Romans chapter 6, if you want to be turning there with me. And, and Romans chapter 6 is not, and you need to be careful when you do this in reading an epistle. You can pick up a, an, an aspect of teaching from an epistle, but you need to realize this. Everything that has to be said about that topic is probably not present in that one passage. So this is a lot of what you need to know about the question we're going to entertain, but it's not everything you need to know. If you want to know everything you need to know, you'd have to know all that the Bible says about that particular thing. But this is going to introduce us to some pretty important information, right? So we've got a little bit of a Q&A element going on here. When we read this passage, we're going to find out this passage is raising a question about the appropriate place of sin in the life of a believer. You ever ask that question for yourself? Is sin present in your life? What's the appropriate place for sin to be present in your life? And what's the inappropriate place for sin to be present? All right, little, little list of questions there underneath your question there. Do you expect to sin? Do you expect that sin will operate exactly as it always has in your life? Right? You were a Christian? Or you were not a Christian at one point? You became a Christian. Do you expect sin to operate exactly the same way on both sides of that moment in your life? Do you expect that at some point you will achieve sinlessness and will experience holiness at a level that is finally done with sin? Do you expect that? Do you see yourself just like every other human being in the world when it comes to facing sin and temptation? What informs your expectations? How do you answer the issues of your life? Because we're going to wade into some doctrine here that provides some answers for us that we need to have. All right, so let's be real for a second. I don't have to assume, I don't have to make a case for the thought that sin is still operating in everyone's life seated in this room this morning. I don't have to make a case for that. I can just ask your husband or your wife or the people who live with you they will back me up in a moment. And if we're humble, uh, we will confess that ourselves. So what do you do if your life has become what I call tethered to particular sin practices and patterns, right? You know, you remember tetherball, right? The little ball on a stick, no matter how much you punched it, it was never going to leave that stick, right? It went around and around and around, but it would only be this far away from the stick or maybe that far away. But let's face it, it was never going free from that stick. That tether ball existed defined by the stick and the string. So let's suppose in your life you, you are tethered. You have sin elements that you are tethered to. You don't ever drift too far from that sin operating in your life. Do you have any? 
sins like that? I'm just trying to make this real. I don't want you to sit here and listen to a message that's not really applicable. Right, so I know living in a screen-filtered world and caring for the souls of men in particular, that there is a massive problem in men's lives with pornography in our culture. And it has found its way into the church's culture as well. Is your life tethered to pornography? Do you live your life with an ongoing strategy in that category of your life, trying to keep it at bay from others knowing about it, trying to keep it in the dark, trying to schedule when the next time you will interact with that material, having it on your mind. And how do you feel about that when I raise the question of what's the place of sin in the life of a believer? And listen, there's all kinds of, of areas that can, can be a tether-type relationship. You, know, you might be here this morning and maybe you don't have one of those kind of sins. Yours are much better behaved. Yours are sins like, like fear, pervasive, permeating fear. You're a control monger. You stare out at life and everything is a chess move in your mind to try and figure out what do you need to move, what I need to say, who do I need to control, what, what, what's my concern for the future. And you never... Your joy, your freedom, peace, you don't ever drift very far from that stick. You are tethered to fear in your life. And then I raise the question, right? Because fear is unbelief. Right? Fear is not trusting God. That's what fear, you have to, you know, so you've you got to sin against the person of God in order to really be afraid of the stuff you're not supposed to be afraid of. So I know, but that's a nice thing. Everybody's afraid of stuff, right? Everybody's, you know, well, Jesus said, do not be anxious about your life. So you break the command of God. Now I know, at least it's not pornography. Listen, I'm not trying to make a case for which one of these you ought to get up in arms about. But in my life, I would say this. I believe God is more displeased with my unbelief than he is. I don't have a pornography problem. But if I did, I think I would be more displeased with my unbelief. Because unbelief is not just a matter of, hey, I give in to a pleasure. Unbelief stares at God and says, I, I don't find you sufficient for me. I don't find in you all that I need to trust my future to. And so I'm freaking out right now. I think God's more displeased by that. So if you're a fear person, don't, don't, don't look down your nose at somebody else who's got a different kind of nasty problem in their life. But what do we do with these issues in our lives? Are we casually connected with ungodly, worldly ideas that, that they have become our motivation? You awake in the morning and you're motivated not for the glory of God, but for the same greed that everybody else in America is motivated by. I just want more. I just want to figure out how to get more stuff, more money, more entertainment, more pleasure. I'm just, why? that's my goal every day. And, yeah, and Jesus is along for the journey with me. Or maybe, maybe it's an entitlement issue. Maybe you're just a person who's walking through life every day of your life. You're, you're wounded. Somebody's hurt you. You've got a track record. Everybody else needs to get it right because you're owed something, right? Everybody ought to be doing right by you. And people who've got to spend five minutes with you, they figure that out pretty quick. And you sin against people because that's a sinful attitude. It's a common attitude, but it's a sinful attitude. All right, so my question in these categories before we read this text is, is if you are sinning, how do you explain that to your own soul? 
And if you bump into others who are sinning, how do you explain theologically the presence of sin in their life? What do you say to them? If you're continuing to sin, just a pattern of staying tethered to something, does does that bother you? Are you here this morning frustrated, irritated? You look at that and something rises up in you and you can't stand it? Or are you just kind of like, oh. I mean, do you get more animated when somebody dares to post an unflattering picture of you on Facebook? It's like, you can't believe they posted that. I specifically asked them not to post that picture. And then we see it and we're like, I'm outraged. Oh. But, you know, do you get that kind of feel about, man, one more day tethered to that? Oh, do you feel that way about that? There's some people just can get oh, so bent out because they didn't do their morning jog or go to the gym. Are you bothered when you didn't read your Bible that day? I'm just curious. Do you get like, oh, today, oh, the whole day is ruined. I read my Bible. That, that says something about us, right? It informs our expectations when it comes to sin being a roommate in our lives. All right, so I've got a question. And I can run to the epistles and I can find help in clarifying what's the place of sin. So let's start reading here in Romans chapter 6, if you're there with me. And, and bear this in mind with me as we read this. Romans has a reputation for being one of the deepest theological books in the Bible. There's a lot of doctrine that's here. There's layers of understanding that are here. And you might be somebody here this morning saying, I can't possibly understand that. You're going to have to just go ahead and read it to me and tell me what it says. Here's an interesting thought from Francis Schaeffer. He's he's no nutcase. He's actually got some interesting insights that helpful. He says, we must remember again that Paul is not writing some sort of theological textbook, but is writing to ordinary men and women. Romans probably represents the customary content of the messages Paul gave whenever he arrived in a new city on his missionary journeys. Since he had never been to Rome, he was probably presenting to them by way of this letter the same material with which he began his ministry in each new location. This is not a letter addressed to Oxford grads, super scholars, everybody who's a specialist in the original language. Only you people in Rome are going to get this. The rest of you Christians over there in Rome... Listen, in the first century, do you know how many people were uneducated in the first century? Stop thinking like an American. They were tradesmen. They were slaves. The vast majority of people didn't have some great education. But Paul wrote these things and in person spoke these things to them like, you can get this. And I don't know what's happened to us. We are a hundred times more educated than they ever were. But we come to the Bible like, you know, I just can't get it. I I try to read the Bible and I don't understand. I'm sorry, you're full of it. (laughs) Why don't you just say this? I'm just so lazy, I don't feel like reading and giving thought to anything I just read. Because the first century uneducated people walked away from this going, wow, that's helpful. And they were not nearly as educated as you and I are. So Romans chapter 6, let's start reading in verse 1 here. We're going to try and see a few things along the way. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How 
Can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Right Now, we're going to go a little further and take this apart, but let's, let's just see some things right here for a moment. There's a question being asked. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Why is that question being asked right here? I will always pay attention to context when you're reading an epistle or anywhere in scripture. So if I kind of zoom out from the passage that I'm reading, I can back up a little bit. And there's this long explanation that Paul really began in in Romans chapter 1 where he explains the nature of grace. And he goes into great detail about the undeserving unlovable dimension of what man is in the first few chapters of Romans. But yet when God gives his grace, it's because he stares down at humanity and not for reasons in man does he decide to be gracious, but for reasons within himself. As a matter of fact, the setting that God chooses to bestow grace upon, it's loaded with sin. And so the concluding comment leading into this is where sin abounded, grace all the more abounded. So no matter how sinful this situation gets, you get more grace coming to it. So the question then comes, well, well, if that's the way grace is, why not just sin all the more? So you can get all the more grace going on, right? So that's the backdrop for this question being asked. But I I think it fits as a generic question as well for our lives. Shall we continue in sin? Period. Now he's going to give reasons why we should not continue in sin. Why the course of sin should be interrupted in the life of a Christian. And so when he gets to this next section, he raises the question of how can we? Right. Look at verse 2. Shall we continue? Well, by no means. I mean, the, 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 in the Greek, that means, I can't even believe you're asking me this question, you idiot. That's kind of what that means in the Greek. That's my Greek background. By no means. How can we? How can we? Do you see that word? Not how will we. How can we? Right? Can is a possibility word, right? How, how is that? How is that even possible what you're asking me? Now this is interesting because you just walked up to the apostle Paul and you asked him, hey, like I got this stuff going on in my life, Paul. Shall shall I continue in sin? This is Paul's go-to response. Now let me just say this clearly. This is not the only response the Bible gives to that question. But in this setting, this is Paul's go-to response, which raises a question for us of what, what do you go to in order to motivate or inform yourself about whether or not you're going to spend one more day in that sin. What, what do you go to? Because there's, there's human traditions out there that shape all kinds of people. You, you, have you met lost people who are nicer than Christians? How many of y'all have met lost people that are nicer than Christians? I've met lost people that are more thoughtful, that are more sacrificial, that are more kind, more patient. All right, so apparently, lost people cannot sin. Lost people can find reasons to stop doing X, Y, and Z. And maybe, maybe we've got the same reasons as Christians, right? There's a, there's a whole 
understanding here that, well, you know, shall we continue in sin? Well, no, because that's wrong. I could get that from the Bible, but that's not what Paul says here. It's not the nature of sin that's the thing he points to. It's the nature of the Christian that he points to. He says, how can you, in reflection to understanding what true conversion is and the new nature of the Christian? He says, there's something about you that's different than what you used to be. And that touches whether you take another step in cooperation with sin. That's his go-to answer. His go-to isn't, well, you're just not supposed to do that. You just need to stop it. You're just not supposed to. Or, and some of us were raised this way in the Christian universe, well, if you keep on doing that, you're going to lose your salvation. Now, some of you have been taught that. And I don't know whether to be careful with that or back a dump truck over it. Um, I just want you to notice this. I won't back the dump truck up this time. You can come up and ask me personally, and I will, but... Can you just notice something here? If there was ever a place in the Bible for that doctrine to get taught, it is right here. If ever the Bible wanted to communicate to Christians, the reason why you need to stop doing your sinning is because if you continue to do that, you might lose your salvation. This is its moment. And it's not what Paul says. Listen, you can find a lot of reasons not to sin. And some of them aren't bad reasons. But they're just not the, really the greatest reasons either. They're not really the ultimate reasons that we get here in this answer. You, you, can, you can maybe decide that you're not going to sin because of the social pressures in your life. When you're a kid, you grow up in a family. And you don't want to be at odds. You don't want a mom and dad to scold you. You don't want to sense their disapproval. So you adjust your behavior. And a lot of us think our kids are Christians because they do this. They're not. Wanting and craving peer approval from my family doesn't make me a Christian. Right? You got some of the best behaved children in your home. That doesn't mean they're Christians. It just means that functioning inside of them perhaps is this, I just want mom and dad to like me. I just want to fit in here. I don't want to face dad's wrath. So, hey, whatever I got to do. Or you, listen, you can do that in the church. You can come into this setting and you can figure out, hey, you know, certain people get applauded around here. They get asked to lead small groups. Hey, what are they doing that gets so much attention? Oh, they're not, not practicing sin like some of the other people around here. Well, maybe I ought to do that. Maybe I ought to stop sinning so much. Maybe I ought to stop sinning those sins out there so much. I'll keep the ones that are more acceptable. And then maybe they'll ask me to do something and I can feel like I fit in here too and I'm kind of important. Right, you know, that's not what Paul offers here, is it? Right? In verse 3, he says, do you not know? Right, this is what epistles specialize in. They specialize in knowing stuff that matters. If you want to know what an epistle is trying to do. It's trying to teach us something. So there's something to be known here, right? Our battle with sin, it needs to know something. I can promise you this, if you're having a hard time, managing, overcoming, dealing with sin, being biblically ignorant is not helping you. Now, unless you just want me to heap on you one of those other ideas, 
You shouldn't do that because it's wrong. You shouldn't do that because it'll hurt somebody else. You shouldn't do that because there's going to be some big consequence coming in your life later on. You know what? All those things are true. They're just not what Paul says right here. He says, I've got deeper reasons for you not to do that. But you're going to need to know what they are. Here's a few reasons that he highlights. One, when he says, do you not know? Do you not know that God mysteriously united you with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection? So that we could walk in newness of life. We could walk in an untethered new life and new lifestyle. Something happened. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when you look at your life, do you see yourself as the same person you've always been? When sin decides to become a roommate with you, do you greet that with the same idea that, well, you know, I struggled with that when I was unsaved in seventh grade and, you know, or, or do you see that there's a newness of life that's come to you? That in Christ, God mysteriously tucked us into Christ somehow. The mystery. And what Christ went through became true for us as well. And it became the redefining facts of our lives. And in the same way that he was crucified, buried, and resurrected unto a new glorified life. That's true of us now too. That's where Paul goes to. He says, you want, to, you want a reason for not continuing to be tethered to these sin issues of your life? Well, the nature of what God did to you when he saved you, there's your reason. He placed you in Christ in such a way that what was true of Christ is true of you now. And it wouldn't make any sense for Christ to walk in that. We've been given this new life to walk in. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on Romans, says, what Paul wrote was this. We... How shall we? He starts with the word we. He puts emphasis on it. It's vital. Why? Because what he's really saying is this. We, being what we are, how is it possible or conceivable that we should continue in sin that grace may abound? The whole emphasis is on our uniqueness, our special position. We being what we are. We being what we are, not something we have done, but our being what we are. That is the vital thing. He's not talking about something we do. He's talking about something that has happened to us. He does not say here that we have renounced sin. He says that we died to sin. Fate accomplished. This has happened. It is a fact. And he's telling it to people who are asking this question like they don't know. And at some level, they don't know. 1 John chapter 3. All right, what I, I'm not going to do this, but just notice something. If you're going to study a doctrine in, in the New Testament, you should, you should take some of the tributaries that feed the river and go upstream and find out who else is saying this. Where else is this being said in the Bible, right? So if you traveled into 1 John chapter 3, you'd find a similar presentation to Romans 6 where it says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. 
Because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. So what is it that unhinges the life from this tether pole? That changes the continuation of sin? Romans 6 calls it the newness of life that we've received. 1 John calls it being born of God. So there is a new life in me. So this needs to scream at me when I wonder, am I going to keep doing that? You know, whatever it is that, that you are tempted to keep doing. Am I going to keep walking in unbelief? Am I going to keep walking in doubt and fear and not trusting God? Am I going to keep walking and, and viewing pornography? Am I going to keep doing that? You're born of God. Somebody explain to me how continuation in that is something that we would be okay with. There's, there's another life inside of us that desires to go in a direction. Whether you ever desire it to or not, it's in you, it's real, it's a person, he's alive, and he wants to live a certain life through us. That's true. And by the way, this is what Paul's teaching us is the remedy to whether you're going to take another step in this direction or not. Second, here's another thing we need to know. Do you not know that what Christ did severed sin's rightful authority to operate in your life as your master? All right, did you know this first of all before we even get to this point? Did you know that sin has the right to own you? Did you know that the devil is called the God of this world? Did you know he's got the right to exercise his government over you? Did you know that there are rights here? That sin has the right in a human being's life. Until what we read here. Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Hold on to that word. So it's a family of words. It has to do with bondage. It's dolos. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. It doesn't have power over him. It doesn't have rights over him. That's what this verse is trying to tell us. And obviously it's trying to tell us what's true about him because what is true about him has been transferred to be true about us. Whether you and I feel like that or not. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Here's why. For sin will have no dominion over you. 
You know, this is where we're, man, sometimes we're just so ignorant. And the world trains us so poorly. We come in with such bad ideas. We come to the Bible, we've never read it before, with this idea that God is everybody's God in exactly the same way. And everybody's God's children in exactly the same way. So we're all in the same category. We're all being spoken about the same way. And, you know, basically people are, there's some really bad ones. But for the most part, people are decent people. And on the inside, deep down inside, they're pretty good people. Right, that's what we're trained with when we come to the Bible. And then we read verses like this. And if you're reading too fast, you read right past this. Sin will have no dominion over you. The whole context of this is any longer. Up until this moment, up until Christ accomplished what he accomplished on our behalf, sin had all kinds of dominion over you. Sin owned the day. You didn't have any dominion over you. Sin did. But you don't feel that way, right? When you're not a Christian, you feel like you're doing your own thing. I'm living my own thing. Living out my own story. Then the Bible comes along and says, you've never been living your story. You've been living sin's story. It's been dominating you and telling you what to do next. And you have never been in control. And then this incredible good news comes. And says something has happened here in Christ that has set us free from this enslaving dominance. This domineering that sin brings. Theological word book says this. Since this word, this family of words, dolos group, it denotes restrictive service. It is the proper term for the relation of ruler and subjects. For it expresses both the power demanded on the one side and the subjection and bondage experienced on the other. Sin shows up with authority to tell you what to do. That's how it operates in this world. Douglas Moo in his commentary says, Paul uses the language of, of realm transfer to show how inconceivable is the suggestion that a believer should remain in sin in order to accentuate grace. We Christians, Paul affirms, have died to sin. We have been taken out from under its tyranny in a transfer so radical and decisive that the language of death and new life can be used of it. Now listen, this is, this is radical information, isn't it? Because when it comes to this tethered experience and living with step after step after step being provided by the, the dictator of sin in our lives, part of us wants to respond and say, hey, 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 I'm only human, Keith, come on. I mean, what, what do you expect? And, and this side of heaven, it's appropriate for you to say I'm only human. But you're over-applying it. You are only human. But this verse seems to be thinking that you can act in a superhuman way because you can. Now listen, you're not fully done with sin. That comes in heaven. So one of those questions that was loaded in the beginning about whether or not you're ever going to reach a place of sinlessness in this life and sort of sinless perfection. And there are teachings out there and there have been historically in Christianity that taught you can reach a place where sin is no longer active in your life. Okay, that, is, that is just a poor reading of the Bible. If you ever stare around and look around and sin is no longer a player in your life, you are dead and you are in heaven. 
And at that moment, that's completely true. Sin is no longer a player. In this world, sin is still a player. In your members, sin is still a player. But sin has lost its authority in your life. How many of you guys would confess that there's lots of people in this world who can get you to do things who don't have any authority over you? Right? You can be tempted by all kinds of stuff. And that person's got no authority over you. So it's not always an authority issue that can lead us into sin. So sin has lost its authority in our lives. Third, need to know this. Do you know that you must reckon or consider or conclude or accept or agree with what God has declared to be true? Look at verse 11. So, all this stuff is true. So, you also must Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. You must do it. But maybe you don't. I want you to just see some things, right? When you read the Bible, do you read the Bible that way? When the Bible comes along and says, you must do this, do you look at that verse and say, well, it's an automatic then. No, no, no. It's commanding you to do it. You must You must conclude this. You must accept it. You must agree with it. Which means I can have moments as a Christian where I don't do any of those things. I don't conclude that sin has lost its authority. I look at my life and I say the common experience is for me to give in and to give in and to give in. So based on that, certainly doesn't look like sin's lost its authority. Looks like sin's operating as good as it's ever operated in my life. So I conclude otherwise. That's why this passage comes along and says, you must agree with God on this. By what Christ has done, he has severed the authority of sin in your life. Number four, do you know this? That you must exercise your will, your decision making to resist sin and to deny giving sin what it wants, what it wants in your life. Look at verse 12. Let not, this is a command. It's assuming you're going to actually cooperate with this. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, its desires, its ideas, its salesmanship brochure that it just presented to you. So no matter how slick of a job sin comes, and by the way, the personification of sin there is very helpful. Sin is not just some force like neutral electricity that travels through a wall sin seems to have an agenda it's got passions it wants something so this is very helpful right because some people are are, you welcome sin like it's electricity like you know i can control it it's going to stay in the walls you know i plug into it i unplug hey i'm good no 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 sin's got a personality in the bible because it's driven by a being with a personality so when sin gets involved in your life it comes in you let it in it comes in and it takes its gloves off and it's i'm so glad you let me in i have been thinking about a hundred things for you thanks thanks yeah just a crack in the door that's all i needed because man i've just been so longing to present some new things to you man and you just hadn't been giving me access and you make room for sin As though it's neutral, as though you're in control of it. 
Right? This, this means that, right? This, this is stuff you should be seeing. You're doing your devotions and you're reading. You should see this. It wants to make you obey its passions. It's got its own ideas and things that it wants you to subscribe to. Do you know this? That if you fail to do this, right? You fail to exercise your will and take authority in your own life. Sin will continue to operate as your master. Even though all these things are true. Sin will continue to be an enslaving presence in your life that tells you when you get to do what you do. Look at verse 15. What then? Are are we to sin? Because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves? Of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. If you decide to make yourself available, whatever it is that you submit yourself to, surrender yourself to, cooperate with, the Bible says that thing will take ownership and will function like a master in your life. So to not heed these things, to not grasp and appropriate and see them and apply them in our lives is to live with sin operating as a taskmaster, as a tyrant, as an owner who shows up on a bad day full of passions and commands us to do X, Y, and Z. And you and I will get about doing X, Y, and Z. That's what's here in this passage. Right, there's a lot of stuff to know here. Do you not know? This is what Paul was responding to. You want to talk to me about whether you can consider in sin? Do you know these things? And he, he's got a list going here, right? Here's the fifth thing for us to notice. Do you know that you are always a slave or a servant of something or someone? You are always a slave or a servant of something or someone. Verse 17. But thanks be to God. That you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Oh, this is, this is so unpopular. Just give me a minute here. This is so unpopular. No, no one wants this idea functioning in their life. There is something in us that wants to feel like... I'm an autonomous person. I'm doing my own thing. I march to the beat of my own drum. You know, you got to do what's right for you, man. I mean, this is the kind of counsel that we get in this world. Go through a conflict with another person and get somebody on your side. Hey, man, you just got to be true to you, right? That, like, like, that's the ultimate destination. That somewhere out there for humanity is this available place called complete autonomy where I am disconnected from everything. And finally, I get to do what I want to do. Can I just be the most unpopular preacher in town right now and tell you that place doesn't exist? By God's design, you were invented by God to be a servant. You were never invented to be a God. You were never invented to live your life unto yourself without taking commands from something outside of you. I know it feels good when we can finally fix our life and make it feel like that way. I finally get to do what I want to do, right? 
Finally got my schedule the way I wanted. I got people in my life the way I wanted. I got divorced from that person. I did this thing over here. I finally got my world the way I wanted. Um, the Bible says you are always serving something. Always. Right? So we go back to the first scene. We learned this in the Garden of Eden. There was this day of temptation where the devil comes along and he says, Hey, if you guys will just eat from this tree, it's going to set you free from God. You won't need to do what he says. You won't need his knowledge. You'll have your own knowledge. How many of you guys know that was not a good day in that moment? It sounded like autonomy. It sounded like, hey, we can step away from God being kind of in control of everything about us and taking all of our cues and our prompts. and We're just going to do whatever God has us do next. We just walk with him in the garden. We don't even know a bunch of stuff. The knowledge of good and evil, we heard it's in a tree over there, but we don't even know what that is apart from God explaining some of it to us. I think we'd like to know on our own. How many of you guys know that the moment they ate of that tree... They didn't become autonomous. They became slaves of sin and the devil. They simply took their servanthood and transferred it from God to the devil and to sin. And that became the storyline of humanity. He is serving. Always serving. God designed us to be serving. Do you remember when God confronts Pharaoh? We read this when we studied Exodus. That ever non-ending study of Exodus. That was made fun of by certain individuals. When God speaks to Pharaoh about these people that have been enslaved by Pharaoh, do you know what he tells him? Go look in Exodus chapter 10. God says to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. Did you ever understand? Because I know sometimes we love that Exodus story. It's like, yeah, God, the hero, the underdog. He stepped in there. and He set those people free. There were some people mistreating them and he set them free. As though God said, okay, here you go, guys. The world's your oyster. Y'all go out and get it. Go live in it. Enjoy it. Just do whatever y'all want it to be. I'll see y'all later. God said, I don't want them serving you. I want them serving me. You let my people go from serving you so that they may serve me. Listen, you are never not serving someone or something. Since we've got a lot of baby boomers here, Bob Dylan was very helpful with this as well. <laughs> here's, here's, here's late Bob Dylan for you. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may, I'm very tempted to try to do a Bob Dylan uh, impression. <laughs> you may be the heavyweight. <laughs> champion of the world you may be a socialite with a long string of pearls but you're gonna have to serve somebody yes indeed you're gonna have to serve somebody well it may be the devil or it may be the lord but you're gonna have to serve somebody and you know what that that song didn't draw popular support from Many people, when he wrote it, John Lennon hated that song. John Lennon wrote a mockery song in response to that song called Serve Yourself. And in it he wrote, well, you may believe in devils and you may believe in lords, but Christ, you're going to have to serve yourself and that's all there is to it. Really? So when I go out to serve, I can serve myself? John? Mr. Imagine There's No Heaven? John? 
It's interesting, on a Bob Dylan website in England, there's a guy who takes exception to Bob Dylan's words in this one song. He loves everything about Bob Dylan except this one song. He says, I utterly disagree with the sentiment. My position is that I'm perfectly happy for believers to get on with their lives as long as they allow me to get on with mine without interference, right? Autonomy. I can do my own thing, my own way. He says, living in England, of course, I don't have that. For I live in a country in which the bishops sit in parliament influencing laws on things like divorce, the right to die, and whether my local supermarket can open all day on Sunday. It can't. Because they're religious beliefs. But that's another matter. I don't serve the Lord of this song. For if I serve anyone, it's my family and people in general. I just try to be a nice guy. You're you're never, apart from biblically understanding what it is to serve Christ, you're never serving yourself. You just think you are. What happened in the Garden of Eden redefined serving. You may feel like you're serving yourself. You are serving the interest of sin and the devil. Or you are serving God. And so Bob Dylan's right. He's theologically the most accurate guy can go in here. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. Those are your only two choices. You're going to serve one or the other. You have the band to come back up here. Without Bob Dylan, by the way. If Ronald comes up here and does a really good Bob Dylan impression, that would be awesome. <laughs> you got that in you? <laughs> All right, question. I think I, did I put this question at the bottom of your notes there? All right, so we're talking about we're talking about we're talking about dealing with sin. We're just raising the issue here that I'm a Christian, but I look at the landscape of my life and there's there's sin still present. How do I explain that? Right, now listen, I'm taking a slice of what the Bible says about that. There's a lot I didn't address. And if you want to explore the doctrine of sin operating in a Christian, you need to do more than Romans 6. I'll tell you that right now. But what Romans 6 does do, it, it introduces me to the idea that what Christ has done and what I believe and what I get in agreement with in my life has the power to deal with tethering me to sin. And whether or not I'm going to continue in it or not. I put this thought in your outline. Have you ever stopped to ponder that our own experience of bondage to sin is flowing out of a lack of transferring our serving to Christ? In the places in which you and I continue to take another step in cooperation with sin, it's because that category of my life, I have not transferred my servanthood to Christ. I want something else for me. I know, here's, here's why we're doing meditation, summer Bible jam, is because everything I just said to you, you can sit and say, hey, Thanks for the commentary explanation of Romans chapter 6. I will file that away with all of my other Christian knowledge and I will argue those points. I will argue with yourself first. Because when I pull this passage close to me, 
it stops wanting to ask Christianity and the universe, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? When I pull it close to me, it wants to ask me that question. It wants to use my name, Keith. Will you continue in that sin? Does your, does your Bible reading go here? Right, if I'm just, again, I'm, I love reading through the Bible in a year. I love all those things. But see, if, if Romans chapter 6 was in that, you get to check it off and I get to move on to the next passage tomorrow. You may not have sat down and let that question ask you this question. Shall you continue in that sin? Right now, all across this room, every mind should be wondering, what is that sin for me? And it could be in one of those really socially awkward, loud, deception, disobedience, pornography categories. It could very well be that. And the second this point came up, God was already speaking to you about that. And you are here this morning and God is specifically pointing and raising this question into your own soul. But you may have a nice version of sin going on inside of you as well. You may be a manipulator. You may seek every opportunity in your life to stick a billboard over the top of your head and make much of you and make sure everybody else makes much of you too. And you're never in a social setting where that's not the agenda. And you're as addicted to that as the porn guy is to his porn. You live for the moment that you can let everybody else make a big deal about you. Or maybe you're just so afraid of people that you never get around anybody. So you have retreated from everyone. Because the last thing in the world you want to do is fall under the gaze of somebody else's expectation of you. So you you don't want to fail. I don't want to be seen as a failure. So I've just retreated. I live in this very small space right here. And that's what I do every day of my life. I live right here. And then Romans 6 comes to you and says, will you continue in that? In light of what we've just learned. And what did you hear that was helpful to you? Because right now I want you to encounter God with what you heard. Right? We went through five points, went through a number of things that could have helped you. What stuck out for you right now? Right? So let's, let's, just, let's just let you bow your head and just get quiet. You and God begin to have a conversation right now. Probably not all five things jumped out here. But perhaps there's something that right now is sticking out for you that's a reason, a compelling spirit enlivened reason right now in your soul that's giving you a reason why not to continue in that sin for you what's the Holy Spirit saying to you right now
let each of us, as we invite this passage to find its way into the realities of our lives, God, let each of us avoid the temptation to dismiss this passage. Avoid the temptation to move on too quickly from it. For it sounds clearly like it means what it says. And that what is here is actually doable for us. doesn't say it's easy, but it does say it's doable. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. So, Lord, bring that to life right now for us. Holy Spirit, bring that to life. You have made us new creatures. You have given us a life we once didn't have. You have embedded power in our lives. You have done something in Christ that has severed authority that was granted back in Eden. Lord, there's so much going for us right now. Make it real. Because Lord, there are stories in this room of people being forced to obey the passions of sin. And this morning, this word crushes that. Brings destruction into that place. This is a powerful word, God. So God, for those who thought they would be living for months or years with the passions of lust controlling what they view them gaining access to pornographic images pursuing that Lord your word no matter what that man or that woman's experience has been no matter how long it's been going on this word is greater than that And it says about that passion, let not sin reign any longer. God, if you told us that, it's because we can do that. God, let that be good news launching into hearts. Let the Holy Spirit flood us with faith this morning. God, let us stop believing we can't change because we've been doing one thing for so long. God, for some who are here that are under the control of fear in their life, live in a box seeking safety avoiding this avoiding that this verse screams out something incredible has happened on your behalf and because that's true don't let sin reign in your life to make you obey its cornering passions it's stealing from you don't let it continue God this word means it's possible. This word is ultimately the word of the kingdom of God. No matter what Adam and Eve did in the garden, what Christ did has trumped that. Something greater is at work now. We know something about sin being at work in us. Something greater is at work right now in us. The ability to walk in newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in us. Lord, let that word resonate in our hearts. Do you receive that? Get in agreement with it. Fight. The Bible says you must accept this. You must consider it as true. You must. Do you right now?
escape this verse. Do you right now? You tell God, God, I, I accept that what you said is true. I accept it. God, I agree with that. No matter what my past has been, no matter how bad the struggle, no matter how many times I've failed, maybe I've tried to quit because it's socially not acceptable. Maybe I've tried to quit to be liked by other people. Maybe I've tried to quit because I didn't want my parents to find out. But God, you've given me a bigger reason here today. I can stop. I can change because of what Christ has accomplished for me and what he has transferred to me by the Holy Spirit. God, that's big, that's powerful, it's mysterious, but it's awesome. So God, give us an encounter this week, Lord. This, this, this verse, this passage is meant for ongoing encounter. It's not just a church service encounter. It's an ongoing encounter. God, give us Monday encounter with this word. Wednesday encounter with this word. And sin will not have dominion over us for all these incredible reasons that you have given us. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for drawing near to us through this word. We thank you for the impact that you will produce in our lives in days ahead because of this word. Impart life to us. Make a difference. Rewrite the script of our lives. Lord, we are here to serve you obedience in Jesus name amen amen God bless you guys have an adventurous week